The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced in my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Bliss, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another special midweek episode of the Primary Care Podcast. Uh, today, I, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I think it's time. Uh, I think I, I think I do need to do this. I, I think I need to have another pod on COVID-19. Um, there's enough that's gone on since last update, and I think that's the number one thing in all of our lives right now as primary care providers, no matter where you are across the globe. I know I got some international listeners, uh, good day mates and uh, cheerio. Um, but I think that uh, I think there's some big take, you know, take home talking points that we need to be aware. Um, clearly, it's here. It's in uh, every country, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, so obviously, you know, the media has talked a lot about social distancing and self quarantines, and that's one of the two ways that you can slow this down. Um, and I think that's super important. And I think that's super important that we keep preaching that not only to our patients, but getting on TV, getting on radios, uh, taking media interviews, uh, blogging about it, talking about it, doing podcasts about it. Uh, I think it's important, again, like I talked about last time, we encourage our communities to continue to shut down events, continue to shut down bars, restaurants, things like that, so people can't congregate, um, even though if they're not supposed to, because people will keep doing it in the case of America and spring break. Um, you know, my church actually shut down uh, last week, didn't have church services um, at the behest of uh, not only myself, but also another physician in the congregation who's also serving as our head elder. So that's kind of nice. Uh, so yay, go team God. I made some good decisions there. Um, I think that, um, you know, the other test, the other way, obviously, that we can uh, mitigate and slow down the flatten the curve, as people keep talking about, but uh, slowing down the crazy number of cases and actually uh, stave this off and turn it around. Um, social distancing, quarantine, super important, but then testing. And obviously for all of our American listeners, and even in the United Kingdom, which really struggles with this as well, I, I hear anyways, um, testing is the, the Achilles heel of this entire process um, because you can't definitively tell people and give people adequate risks and, and clearly quarantine entire areas of people if we don't know who has this. And, and this gets back, I wanted to touch on this because uh, for those of you who haven't seen the article in Science, there is a boatload of COVID-19 cases that are completely asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. And we all know this. This is not new. Everyone who's been following along has been paying attention. Uh, but there's so many cases, uh, especially based on the Wuhan uh, data, uh, that COVID cases are almost primarily driving the outbreak. Now, that's not, that's not shocking, but even though milder cases are less contagious and asymptomatic cases are less contagious than the super spreaders, the ones with super high viral loads who are super ill, who are in the ICU, um, in, at least in the Wuhan data, because there were so many, you know, 80% or so, as they say, 86% um, of the cases were mild or asymptomatic, it accounted for roughly 79% of the spread. And the, the statistics are somewhere between upper 60s to 70 percentage of all cases could be prevented by just screening, identifying, and quarantining the people who are asymptomatic or have mild disease. Now, in Southeast Asian countries, uh, South Korea, 
tested every single person, and they caught a lot of these asymptomatic cases. And if you look at the data on who has the disease, you know, we talk about this being an old, uh, you know, an old person disease, uh, 60 plus year old problems. Uh, you know, in South Korea, they showed that 45% of their cases were under the age of 40. And if you look at the Italian data, it's like 10% because Italy, like most of us Western countries, are only testing these symptomatic people. Uh, and I know this is only because we can't produce enough tests. And if we could produce a million tests per day or half a million or even 50,000 tests per day. If we could test 50,000 people a day, we'd be able to start screening entire groups of populations. We'd be able to catch a lot of the mildly symptomatic and asymptomatic people and get them to stay home. But even though South Korea showed that testing specific people and quarantining and finding contacts and testing them and quarantining them was the way that they flattened the curve and actually have completely changed the game. It also made their stats look better, right? Not that that's important, but it reduced their mortality rate to basically half a percent to a percent. Uh, I think the, the data is now at a percent because they have a lot of asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic and young people in their data that makes their mortality rates look better. Um, now, I think that the other strategy, though, that other countries have Employed to really good effect. Um, you know, other Southeast Asian countries, China, uh, Singapore, uh, some of these other places, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, there's good data from Hong Kong, is just to keep everyone home. And I know, uh, you know, Japan, too, has, has done a pretty good job at containing it for the most part. Not, not as good as some of the other ones, but still pretty good. And, and why? Because I think, number one, their culture or the society uh, and their, uh, their immediate mass quarantines. You know, people, you know, in America were given China a hard time for covering this up, which they deserve a lot of the blame, um, and for not being truthful with the data and trying to cover it up, which, yes, they deserve part of the blame. Absolutely. They definitely do. But they immediately quarantined everyone, and they killed their own economy, and they willingly killed their own economy, shutting down factories, shutting down production of things because they needed to stop this. Otherwise, we wouldn't have, you know, 100,000 cases or whatever in mainland China, we would have, you know, millions and millions of cases, uh, you know, with their billion population. So I think that those two strategies, the test strategy, the quarantine strategy, that's the only way to beat this. And in America, we're doing neither. We're doing a half-hearted approach to social distancing and quarantining. I think it's enough to avoid the doomsday predicted numbers that they keep talking about of like the worst case scenario of what this could mean for all of the United States to, you know, for 3 million people to 9 million people to die. Um, I think that those are the doomsday scenarios, and I don't think that's going to happen because of the quarantine, the self, the self-quarantine and the social distancing. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, but we aren't testing enough. We aren't controlling this enough. You know, they talk about the exponential growth and how in China, it, they, uh, I read another study that showed that China, they thought that a lot of the transmission was uh, family, like 80 something percent, 86 percent, I think was the quote, I don't have the, don't have the study in front of me, 86 percent was um, due to family spread and local social circles. And so even though the, the virus starts exponential, um, it's mostly limited by the social connections and the family connections. And that's probably true for Chinese data, especially with the aggressive quarantines that went in place. But it's not going to be true if we don't quarantine and we don't keep people at home. We continue to have people going to work and spreading outside their own family unit. Um, and so I think that that's a big I think that's a big factor. Now, if you're on the West Coast, if you're on the East Coast, if you're in a big city, if you're in Florida, New York, uh, you know, uh, California, Seattle, uh, you're already starting to feel the heat and you're already starting to have the uh, pressure turned up. Here in the Midwest uh, at our uh, animal medical hospital, 
I feel like I've never been prouder of my organization. And I know this is like rah, rah, sispoomba. Um, but I've never seen so much effort, time, and resources put into a single project in my career. And the fact that our organization got a drive-through testing solution up almost immediately, we're trying to completely, you know, remodel our clinic structure. We're canceling, you know, surgeries. We're redoing hospital structures and triage structures. We're doing e-care solutions, uh, pushing these virtual visits to every corner of the organization um, and trying to redefine how we give primary care and, and how we handle this response. I mean, I've never been more proud of the organization. Um, so yay, Anawa. Um, but at the same time, it's not going to be enough. Uh, I, I, granted, we live in a you know rural Midwest, and so I think that our numbers are not going to be as doomsday numbers as some of the big cities. I think that you know we sort of uh, have quarantined off small communities, and yes, people travel in between communities. But I think that again, as long as we can get more tests, I think that these smaller communities can start to. Um, keep the quarantines themselves. And I think it's easier coming from, you know, I grew up in a, in a town of uh, 3000 people, uh, moved to a town of 700 people uh, later, uh, you know, on when I was still in middle school. Uh, a lot of these smaller rural communities, it's really easy to leave. It's really easy to social distance yourself. You know, it's easy to be a farmer and rancher for the most part and to social distance for the most part. Um, there are some, you know, trades and, and, and uh, other places that's going to be a little bit harder. But I think that we're in a good position for my organization. Now, again, if you're on the coast, I think you're absolutely screwed. I think if you're in a metropolitan area, I think you are absolutely toast no matter what we do because people are being idiots and not listening to recommendations. So unless the federal government gets really crazy and they really put some, uh, everybody stays home who's unessential, and unless they put massive quarantines, forced quarantines with some teeth behind them in place, uh, we're not beating this thing anytime soon. So this is in it for the long haul. Um, I think uh, I think we'll get really overwhelmed. Hospitals, ICUs. Uh, I think a lot of our healthcare, as we know it, will change. I said in my coronavirus update uh, several weeks ago. I said, you know, we got to be prepared. There's going to be big at local outbreaks. Uh, we're definitely going to see tens of thousands of cases. We're definitely going to have uh, different pockets of outbreaks. Um, I just did not expect us to not be able to test. I thought we'd be able to test. I thought we'd be able to quarantine these people. I thought we'd be able to shut it down to, you know, a thousand cases on the West Coast, thousand cases in big cities and scattered cases, but immediately test these people and find out. And I was so, 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 so wrong um, that we are missing the testing. So um, what to look for in primary care? Um, again, so if you're out there and you're not part of ANOA, which is the majority of you, I think only like 10% of my audience actually is uh, ANOA medical group uh, people. Um, you know, it's important that your organization works on virtual visits uh, to keep healthy people healthy and at home. I think it's important to use those virtual visits for sick people as well, the sick non-COVIDs. I think for mild COVIDs, you got to quarantine them. You got to get these people and tell them that they have to stay home. Uh, you have to get better testing locally. I don't know how we do that without reagents. Uh, states are all running out of it. Um, and that's contributing to all the frustration. I think your organization has to come up with unique ways to solve the crisis. And I can talk for days about what Anna is doing, but it's not going to work for all organizations. Um, so you have to come up with good specific things for your organization, and how you're handling it. And I've heard uh, around the country, lots of good stories and from friends uh, from residency uh, uh, and med school who are all over at different places and what they're doing. Um, and I think a lot of places had come up with unique solutions for their, uh, their situation, but uh, we're gonna have to think outside the box to solve this. Um, what to look for? 
obviously everyone knows by now, uh, fever, uh, you know, dry cough, uh, and, um, some shortness of breath. Uh, the things that I've seen from uh, anecdotal reports um, from people who have been getting it uh, a little bit more severe, uh, headaches, fatigue, body aches, obviously those are not specific to COVID, but also highly reported quite frequently. Uh, I've seen some weird things, which I won't even muddy the waters with, just not to confuse things. Um, if they are short of breath, the key that it's not just a bacterial pneumonia is instead of it being a unilateral, infiltrates a bilateral uh, haziness, almost like a uh, bronchiolitis-like po- looking picture on CT scan if you have that available in the ER, if you're covering ER coverage, or if you really want to confirm it, uh, bilateral ground glass, opa- ground glass opacities, uh, very clear diagnostic hallmark. Or, uh, hallmark. Uh, you can pretty much not even need a COVID positive test if you've got that on CT scan. Um, the, the key thing, though, is obviously of bacterial pneumonia as a side effect, but the big, big, big complication is ARDS. So when this goes downhill, you get you know non-cardiogenic dependent edema and turns the lungs basically into uh, a mushy sack of fluid. Um, you have to get these people uh, seen and treated really quick. Now, from a treatment standpoint, what can you do? Uh, the data on NSAIDs looks pretty unclear, but it's sketchy enough. I'm telling people not to use NSAIDs and just to switch to Tylenol. I don't think that's definitive. I don't think that's clear evidence-based science discussion, but I think there's enough uh, with the whole ACE2 uh, connection. Uh, again, I'm not stopping. I'm not telling my patients to stop their ACEs or ARBs. Uh, you know, if they get them, if they get COVID, then yeah, maybe we're stopping ACEs and ARBs. Uh, but I don't know if the risk outweighs the benefit. I don't, I don't have a good recommendation at this point for that. But clearly, NSAIDs are not needed. Try Tylenol. Um, the data, you know, early small N numbers look really good for hydroxychloroquine. Uh, the two dosing regimens I've seen out there is 600 for the first six days, um, and then uh, de-escalating to like 400 for the rest of the 14 days. I've also seen uh, the Koreans really like uh, 400 BID times one day, and then 400 milligrams after that. I've seen that dosing regimen, um, where you get a booster of 800 milligrams on one day, and then 400 until it's better. Um, normally, most people are only taking this for six days, as it seems to reduce viral loads enough to get people feeling pretty good for mild and and moderate cases that don't need hospitalization. For hospitalization cases, still works pretty good. Apparently, um, there's this weird study with like 24 patients out of France that uses hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin. Now we know azithromycin as a macrolide's got anti-inflammatory properties, uh, works in some viruses, even though antibiotics don't really work for viruses. So maybe there's some value in that if you're wondering if there's bacterial pneumonia on top of it anyways. So you can't go wrong with azithromycin if you're worried about a bacterial pneumonia. But those are probably our two big cheapest, easiest, most uh, available uh, drugs. Obviously, there's a ton of medications uh, for hospitalized and ICU patients, including the HIV drugs. Uh, I don't think I'm going to talk about that much because at least here, I don't think there's any chance I'm going to get those approved or find those in stock um, outside of working in an ICU for overflow coverage. Um, I've been trying to brush up on my vent and ARDS, uh, ARDS um, management, uh, and what I've been reading is, uh, you know, low tidal volume. So calculate the patient's ideal body weight based on their height and then uh, give them uh, six cc's per kilogram of tidal wave, four to six cc's per kilogram. Uh, so low tidal volumes uh, probably have to paralyze them because they'll probably want to breathe over that. Um, so whatever your hospital's protocol is for paralytics, uh, you'll probably have to give them early. Um, and then think about uh, pronating the patient if they have to be on a ventilator. And again, I know we're talking primary care. I know we're talking general, but if you're in a small town or you you get asked to help. I think it's important to know some of this management stuff. Um, so when the patient starts going downhill, tubing them early, uh, and then high 
peep. So between like I've been reading somewhere between four and fifteen peep setting uh, to to titrate up because um, peep is really good in ARDS to keep those alveoli open so that positive and expiratory pressure. I know I'm taking you back. I'm taking you back to residency and and USMLE steps. Um, but uh, so low tidal volumes. Paralytics, so they don't overbreathe the respirator. You titrate the peep uh, to uh, you know a sat around 92%, um, just because that's kind of what you're looking for. You don't need any higher than that in ARDS. Um, and then there's been some really good data so far on pronating these patients. Um, and there's a lot to that and why. Um, there's a couple of really good YouTube videos that I watched when I was reviewing on vent management and uh, critical care management for COVID patients, but pronation seems to be good, especially in ARDS, especially for ventilated patients to put them on their stomachs for 18 hours a day has to do with how um, much surface area the heart condenses and uh, uh, how the uh, rest of the lungs fill up. And it has to do with gravity and where that dependent edema flows down to. So I think that there's uh, some really good data on pronation, which is not new for COVID. That's, that's ARDS in general. So again, um, hydroxychloroquine uh, is a probable a good drug that seems to be good. Plus or minus is ithromycin, Tylenol, not ibuprofen. Uh, if really the only thing that we are seeing that you need to worry about these people is that shortness of breath. Um, if they're monitoring their SATs, uh, again, maybe have them swing into your clinic, but have like a sick room in the back, maybe meet them in their car with a SAT probe and just get a SAT and say, make sure it's a good SAT, a warm SAT that it, you know, their hands are warmed up. Maybe they they can turn their heater on in their car. If you're, uh, you know, in here in the Midwest where it's still super cold, you get a good SAT from their vehicle, their SAT's fine. They can go home. Their SAT sucks. Yeah. They probably need to be admitted. Um, and if you're covering the ER, if you're covering the hospital, then yeah, look for that CT scan, look and see if they've got some ARDS going on, or sorry, if they've got that bilateral ground glass opacity, look for pulmonary edema, look for signs and symptoms of ARDS and, and not profusing well enough and not getting adequate enough oxygenation. And so don't be afraid to intubate these people early. Uh, vent settings, uh, not terribly complicated. Uh, and then that's the big stuff. Uh, if you get organ failure, gosh, that's going to be an intensivist. I hope none of my primary care people are managing uh, end organ failure. But for ARDS, if you if you get tasked to do it, um, that's that's about the best that we can do as primary care providers. So um, again, look out for that. There's a ton on the internet and on on Med Twitter and on YouTube about the different uh, you know abnormalities on laboratory testing. Uh, I saw. D-dimers are really positive, LDHs, there's some uh, IL-1 tests that people are doing, there's predominant lymphos- lymphopenia on, on with usually a normal white count with these uh, cases. But again, I'm hoping that you never even need to worry about labs. You know, this has been pretty straightforward for most people. It's been, you know, fever, dry cough, shortness of breath that progresses either into, you know, unilateral bacterial pneumonia or bilateral ground glass opacities leading to ARDS in severe cases, and those people need care and probably ventilation and, you know, uh, intubated really soon. So uh, hopefully we hit enough big topics that today is good. Um, Hopefully you got something out of today. Hopefully it wasn't stuff that uh, we, hopefully it's stuff we never have to use. Hopefully it is helpful, and uh, hopefully we get through this with our sanities intact and with as many lives saved as possible, but uh, we are definitely going to lose a lot of people in the next several months. Um, Projections, I've seen this going for six months for a lot of really smart people where it won't peak for another two to three months, 
uh, where we aren't seeing going to see a peak until end of May, if not June. Um, I've seen peaks in July, and I've seen six months of pretty severe plateau, depending on our how aggressive we get with quarantines and how our testing um, capabilities come into play. But um, if you're in the Midwest, buckle up. The next 15 days to 20 days are going to be the escalation and the tipping point in the Midwest. If you're on the coast, you're already past the tipping point, and it's only going to get worse from here. So God bless everybody. Take care of yourselves, and uh, have a good night.